If you uh, think it's kind of weird sometimes that whoever comes up here to preach will turn this round table like a certain way, because it's like, it's round, what, what does it matter? There's actually something written on this that says, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. <laughs> so that is, uh, it's actually a quote from a guy named Charles Spurgeon. You probably heard of him. He's pretty great. Um, anyway, uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, I am so excited to be here this morning and to be able to share the Word of God with, with you. And um, we have been in a series here at OCEC this summer. It's called I Am With You. We've been looking at Jesus in the Upper Room. Uh, so, what this is, is a section of the Gospel of John, uh, John 13 through 17, where Jesus is about to be betrayed and arrested and go through the crucifixion. And before he does this, he gathers his disciples together, his 12 closest friends, and he shares a meal with them. And during the process of that meal, Jesus does several things. And kind of the whole broad overall point of these whole, this whole section of, of the Gospel of John is that Jesus is leaving his disciples with the most important things that they should know before he gets betrayed and before he leaves them, before Jesus uh, ultimately ascends into heaven and is no longer physically present with his friends. So he starts off by, in John 13, he washes his disciples' feet. And one of the things that Jesus is doing in that time is he's teaching them about how they need him to serve them. Jesus' followers don't just need to clean themselves up or to, uh, to, to serve themselves, but they require that Jesus serves them and sacrifices himself for them. So Jesus takes on the role of a servant of a humble servant, and he washes his disciples' feet, a job that was pretty lowly and not desirable. Now, after this, Jesus teaches his disciples about several things. He has this whole conversation about people are going to betray him, and he, he, uh, he predicts his death, and he also predicts his uh, resurrection. He, uh, he offers then words of comfort to his disciples and says, I know that I'm not going to be around anymore, but somebody is going to come. The Holy Spirit is going to come after I leave, and the Holy Spirit is going to be the one who leads, guides, comforts, and is with you. God's very presence, the Holy Spirit, is going to be with you. So just like I, Jesus, have been God's very presence with you in this time, the Holy Spirit is going to come, and he is going to be with you when I am gone. And he emphasizes that anybody who knows him has a relationship with him. Anybody who knows Jesus has had a relationship, has a relationship with Jesus and knows him and has a relationship with God the Father. He goes on and he explains how he is the, the vine and his disciples are the branches, how they are vitally connected to him in some way, and they can't do anything apart from him. If the vine is separate, or if the vine is separated from the branches, right? If the branches are not connected to the life of the vine, those branches wither and they die. And then he goes on and he commands his disciples. He says, you need to set yourselves apart from the world. And the way that you do that is by loving one another. 
The way that you do that is by sacrificing yourselves for one another. Which is like, Jesus sort of holds this up as his like main 100% command. You love one another. If you follow me, love one another, period. And that's how the world will know who I am. He then goes on and he explains how the world is going to hate the disciples. And because of the countercultural message that they preach, the message that we need to love our enemies, even those who are so far away from us and so opposite of us, that the world would say, you need to just cut that person out. That's a toxic person. Get them out of your life. Get rid of them. But Jesus' command is that his people love those people. And those disciples would be hated for that message, the message not only that we need to do something totally like opposite of what the world would want to do, but also that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, not Nero, not anybody else. Jesus is the boss. That's a countercultural message. And it's one that the, Jesus explains the world hates him first because of that message, and because the disciples preach that message, the world's going to hate them as well. And then he goes on and he says, but even though you're going to have trouble in the world, even though this is going to happen, even though during your earthly lives you're going to be persecuted in many different ways, and the disciples were persecuted terribly, he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus wins. He then closes his time with his disciples, with a prayer. All of John 17, chapter 17, is a prayer of Jesus. In fact, it's the longest recorded instance of Jesus praying that we have in the entire Bible. And it's really important. Scholars call it the high priestly prayer, and it's because Jesus is functioning in that moment as a priest. He's stepping into the role of priest, and he's interceding for his people to God. He's saying, look, the people are here, and I am this intercessor. I'm this person that's sort of between, like, mediating this relationship between God and my people, and I'm praying for them. I'm, I'm acting as a priest in this way. He prays for himself that the Father would glorify him and that others would come to the know of the Father through him. He prays for his disciples, for their unity, for their protection, for the way that they are sanctified and set apart from the world. And then at the end, he prays for everybody else who's going to come to believe in him. Jesus prayed for you and for me. That's pretty amazing. Not only who those believe in that moment, but those who believe now. for our unity, for our witness to those outside the faith. And that's where we come to the conclusion of Jesus' prayer today. So let's read our passage. If you open up to John chapter 17, and as you're turning there, why don't you think about a time in your life when somebody did something really thoughtful for you that uh, was unexpected? You know, I think that in this way, like, like Jesus does something really thoughtful for his followers. He prays for them. And that, I, I don't know, it's just it's something that's, it strikes me as it's something that's really kind of amazing. So think about a time in your life when someone has done something really thoughtful for you. Maybe it's given you a gift that you needed or um, prayed for you in a way or served you in some way. Think about that as you're turning to John 17. And then when you're there in John 17, just turn to your neighbor 
and tell that person, what was the time that somebody did something really thoughtful for you? Ready, set, go. So when I kind of think about this, um, I, uh, about a week ago or so, I got a text from my wife's mom, and she's actually, she's actually in town. She doesn't know I'm going to share this story. Uh, <laughs> she's in town, and, but she texted me and was like, hey, uh, I know you really like pie. I want to bring a pie. <laughs> what can I bring for you? And for I, that just like it kind of blew me away. I know it seems like so small and kind of trivial, right? Like food, pie, but if you know me, and uh, my wife has said this to me, the way to my heart is through my stomach. Uh, and that's, I feel like I'm not alone in that. But it was just really thoughtful. I thought it was kind of amazing. And one of the things, and it was a delicious pie, by the way, just so you guys know, uh, it was wonderful. Like this three, three berry thing with the crumbly top, and I know now we're all hungry, it's fine. Uh, if you're a pie person, would you raise your hand? Beautiful. If you're a cake person and not a pie person, would you raise your hand? Good. Okay, we're in the, we're in the, I'm in the right room. <laughs> this is good. Now, Jesus does this thoughtful thing, and it's, it's a little bit more than buying somebody a pie, right? It's praying for them, interceding, coming to the Father and saying, Father, would you do this? Father, would you remind them of this? Father, thank you for this. And we finish our passage in John 17, verses 24 through 26. It's a short little section at the very end of Jesus' prayer. And here's what he says in verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the end of Jesus' prayer. This is the last sort of thing that he says to God before they leave this upper room area and go to the garden where Jesus is betrayed by Judas, arrested by the Roman authorities, tortured and executed. It's pretty powerful stuff. And there's a few things that we want to highlight from this. And the first thing is this. Jesus wants to be with his people. Jesus wants to be with his people. And more specifically, Jesus wants his people to be where he is. Look at verse 24. 
Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Think about this for a second. The fact that Jesus wants his people to be with him, wants his disciples to be with him, means that he doesn't just love them. He doesn't just sort of like grit his teeth and sort of like bear down and knuckle, like white knuckle it and just sort of tolerate them because he loves them. You know what I'm saying? You don't have those people that you say like, I love you, like through gritted teeth, right? That one neighbor that's always doing something annoying, that one person at work that's always, that's always doing that thing that just really gets on your nerves and you're like, I love you so much. Like, you're the best. No, Jesus doesn't just love his people, he likes them too. He wants to be with you and me. Have you considered that? That was a huge moment in my walk with Jesus when I went from the transition between Jesus loves me and what that means is he sort of just like tolerates me and sort of is like, you know, like that guy, I don't know. But I love him because I have to. To Jesus wants to be around me. He likes me too. Jesus doesn't just love you. He wants you to be with you. Or he wants you to be with him. He doesn't just hold his nose. He actually likes you. He wants to be around you. In fact, this is a theme that we see throughout all of Scripture. One of the main things that we see in, uh, in the Older Testament is this institution of feast days. So we have like different things where uh, different holidays throughout the year where God's people were commanded to gather together and feast, celebrate, hang out, enjoy a meal together, pray to God, thank him for this thing, ask him for this other thing. Uh, repent of your sin and move on in in cleanness, that tells me that God likes to party with his people. (laughs) He likes to be around us. He's attracted to us in that way. That's pretty incredible. Here's the other thing about this that I think is so profound and that as I was preparing this, it kind of blew me away, was when Jesus says he wants his people to be with him where he is and to see his glory, that word glory is very important throughout John's gospel. Glory throughout John's gospel has kind of this like two-level sort of like meaning. There's glory in the sense of what we would think of normally as glory, which is like I walk into a room and let's say that I, you know, I open a door and God's on the other side of the door and his glory just like blows me away and fries me like this, like the scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where the guy's face melts off. Like, ah, God's glory, right? Glory. That's one thing. But the other thing that John's gospel talks about glory as is the moment, the process of Jesus' torture, crucifixion, and death. He says things like the hour of glory has come, and what he's referring to is his death. He wants people to see that. The lowest, most miserable, most humiliating lowest point in Jesus' entire life. He's inviting his friends into that. Now, I don't know about you, but when I am going through 
whatever, and I have a really low moment in my life, there are many times where the last thing I want to do is invite anybody into it. I don't want you to see me like this. I don't want you to have this image of me in your head of this moment of my life. I don't want you to think differently of me because of whatever this is. But Jesus wants his disciples to see his glory. And that glory is him being crucified. Jesus invites his people into that moment. How much do you have to like a person or want to be around them to invite them into that moment of your life? It's pretty amazing. Jesus is so sure that he wants his father or he wants his disciples to be with him that he asks the father to show them his worst moment. And in that moment he's supremely glorified. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus tell the Father that he wants his followers to see his glory and all of, like, all of the glory, not just the glorious parts of his glory? Do you know what I'm saying? But all the other pieces, too. As one of my professors in seminary put it, he said, Jesus cared more about the hour of glory than about 15 minutes of fame. And we live in this sort of cultural moment where we can sort of cultivate our lives, like our public lives in such a way, through social media and through the way that we present ourselves to the world. We can create this image where we show people the highlight reels and we show people the, the high points and we show people the good stuff and we don't really show anybody else anything that isn't that. We're kind of after our 15 minutes of fame in that way. But Jesus is after the hour of glory, not just 15 minutes of fame. Not just showing everybody the best pieces, but showing them the truth. He cared more about accomplishing salvation, even if it meant that he'd be mocked, humiliated, hated, than just achieving some kind of like shallow fame. And then what Jesus does, so, so Jesus wants to be with his people, but then what Jesus does is he says, he finishes his prayer and he reveals some, some profound details about his relationship with God, the Father, and the Father's relationship with him. Here's what he says. Righteous Father... Though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and I myself may be in them. Jesus, his relationship with the Father, Jesus makes God known. Or, as I like to put it, what we see with Jesus, what we see in Jesus, is what we get with God. What we see is what we get. What we see in the life of Jesus as portrayed in the Gospels is what we get with God. 
This is a major theme in this upper room discourse, this idea of knowing God and Jesus knowing God and Jesus helping his, his disciples know God. And what Jesus does in this moment is he answers a fundamental question that people have had since people have been people, which is how can I know God? How can I do this? Or how can I know if there even is a God? And maybe there is a God, but how do I know this God? What, what's God like? How does God feel about blank? What does God think about this thing? What does God think about me? Is God good? Is he not good? What's the deal? So let's talk about this for a second. We're going to step back for just a sec. There's, like, there's three major ways, three sort of main ways that we get to know God. And the first one is this. The written word is scripture. Okay? So what we have in our hands right here, our Bibles are the written word of God, Scripture. Paul describes it like this. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The idea is that we get to know God through the written word. If we're curious about what God has to say about a topic or a subject we can look in the scriptures. And the scriptures do this thing because they're breathed out by God and because God is ultimately the one who put it together. We encounter God and know God through his word. There's a moment of encounter in that when you read the scriptures, where we see something true about God and they bear witness to who God is. The second one is this, and this is what we've been talking about on this section, is the living word, Christ. So we have the written word, scripture, we have the living word, Christ. At the very beginning of John's gospel, John describes Jesus as the word of God made flesh, the living word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then later on in John chapter 1, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Interesting introduction to that topic. Jesus reveals the Father. Jesus makes God known. And Jesus goes on, if in Jesus we see who God is. He says, righteous father, though the world doesn't know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. And then look at verse 26. This is where I would want to zoom in. It says, I have made you known to them. Namely, my disciples, the people that know me and I will continue to make you known. Jesus' prayer is that we would get to know God by knowing Jesus. How can I know God? How can I know who God is? Get to know Jesus. How can I know what God is like? Look at Jesus. How do I know what God thinks about blank or feels about blank? Get to know Jesus. 
What does God think about me? We just talked a little bit about what Jesus thinks about you. The way that we know God is in Jesus. And if we don't know Jesus, we don't know God. That's kind of the logical outcome of that. There's one final way that we get to know God, and that is this, the lived word. We have the written word, scripture, we have the living word, Christ, and we have the lived word, the church, Jesus's followers. Jesus makes the Father known, but we make Jesus known to the world. Look at this. In Romans 5, 5, Paul says this. Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. So Romans 5, 5 is this like profound thing where Jesus or God, I should say, the Father, has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does this thing. When we confess and believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in and pours God's love into our hearts and we are given the Holy Spirit. And then what happens is the Holy Spirit then binds us in love up in the life of God. We are given the Holy Spirit. If it's true then that we're united to Christ and to God in love by the Spirit who God has given to us, okay? And if it's true that Jesus' love is in us and he is in us, look at what he says in John 17. Look at this. So he's like, I'm going to make the Father known to them. I'm going to continue to make him known in order that the love you have, that's God, you have for me may be in them. And I myself may be in them. That's like, that's pretty crazy. The love that the Father has for Jesus, that eternal, self-sacrificial, crazy love, is also in us is also in his people. So if that's true, then the church, God's people, become a way that God has made known to the world. Jesus' followers reveal something true about Jesus. The Father makes Jesus known or the, 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 Jesus makes the Father known, I should say. We make Jesus known. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, go out and make disciples of all the nations. Make Jesus known. Here's my question, though. Does Jesus realize who he's talking about here? <laughs> does, he, does he get it? <laughs> does he understand the kind of person I am. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he does. The question is, I think in this moment, 
is what do we do, what happens when we fail to live up to this high calling? We've been given this like incredible gift, which is the Holy Spirit and the ability to make Jesus known to the world around us. This is, it's an incredible thing. But what happens when we fail, when we do this imperfectly, when I don't love others the way that Jesus commanded me to do, when I don't live up to the standards that Jesus wants me to live up to? Should I just try harder? Should I just manage my sin a little bit better? Should I put up some more fences around myself and just kind of like, stay in my little box? Should I, should I create a better system to hold myself and others accountable for our behavior? Should I white-knuckle my way through life out of a fear that if my morality fails, so does my witness? Because that's the fear, right? If my morality fails, if my devotion to Jesus fails, my witness has failed as well. That's the fear. Here's the thing. We know our hearts are unholy, but the cure for an unholy heart is the message of the gospel. It's not like a morality. At that point, morality is just a fig leaf covering over something that is much, like everybody knows it, right? The emperor has no clothes in this situation. Everybody knows. We get it. And if I just try and like clean up my life and make it look better and be like, oh yeah, this is, this is exactly what I need to be and ta-da, here's the portrait of a perfect Jesus follower now everybody can go follow Jesus. No, that's not gonna happen for me. I know who I am. Our witness doesn't fail if our morality fails. Our witness fails if we don't receive the gospel when our morality fails. There's going to be a moment, there's going to be many moments throughout each of one of our lives where we are faced with a choice. We screwed something up big time. And in that moment, we have a choice. Can I hide that? Can I make myself look better? Can I continue to uh, have my witness in the world? Or can I actually believe the real, true message of the gospel that you and I are more messed up than we could ever believe and we are more loved than we could ever hope by a God who is there? who loves us, who loves you and me, who wants to be near us, who wants us to see his glory. That is the choice we are faced with. And I would rather see a group of people who are honest and real about the moments that they fail and then acknowledging that Jesus saved them in that moment than a group of people who are sanitized and perfect and smiley, and never have any issues. Because life with Jesus is still life. Am I right? Life with Jesus is still life. It's messy. It's messed up in many ways. We mess up. We wander away. We lose sight of who Jesus is. We fail. 
We show our ugly side. We have humiliating moments. And guess what? Jesus wants to be with us even then. If Jesus invites his people into his worst moments, says, I want you to see my glory, and that glory is ugly (laughs) in the Gospel of John. If Jesus invites us into that, can you imagine what Jesus wants us to invite him into? That is the Jesus we worship. He invites his followers into his glory, which in the context of John, context of John is, is excruciating. And I think he wants us to do the same. That is how we bear witness to the love and nature of God. I don't bear witness to the nature and love of God if I just have a perfect life, at least on the surface. I bear witness to the nature and love of God when I admit who I am and I tell the truth. That God has saved me from the lowest of the low. We openly admit that we're more messed up than we would ever want to believe and that God loves us more than we could ever imagine. That's the message of the gospel. The solution is the gospel. The solution is believing in Jesus and repenting and moving on with him. God wants to know us and be known by us so that we would love, carry his love to a world that doesn't know him yet. Jesus is clear about that. The world does not know the Father. Jesus knows the Father, and he can unite people to the Father, and we bear witness to Jesus. Jesus makes the Father known. We make Jesus known. Let's pray.